morning I want to um, bring to your attention a, a passage of Scripture that is something of an audit for our church, an audit for Wellspring Ministry, an audit for our own hearts and lives. I don't know if you've ever been audited before, if you've ever been under the microscope of the Internal Revenue Service or some auditing firm um, or maybe an internal audit in your corporation, uh, what would it be like for you to be audited? What would it like for you to be audited in what you do in everyday life? Uh, what would it like for what would it be like for your church to be audited? And this wouldn't be a financial audit. Uh, nobody inspecting the books, the budgets, the payroll, the regulatory compliance. Um, but to get a rundown on how things are going spiritually, theologically, devotionally. And to come under the scrutiny of one who knows everything. One who sees everything. One who is intimately connected and knowledgeable about the ins and outs of your church and your life. What if Jesus himself were to audit and evaluate your life? Well, that's exactly what happened in Asia Minor in the first century. Jesus sent seven letters by the Apostle John, seven audits to seven churches that existed in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, The first of which is the church at Ephesus. This would have been 60 miles from where John was exiled on Patmos, that Alcatraz of the ancient world. He was on a rock, isolated by himself, imprisoned because of his love for Jesus. And Jesus, through John, sends a letter to the church at Ephesus. I want to read together in Revelation chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 7. This is Jesus' audit, Jesus' evaluation of a church perhaps much like Grace Bible Church. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus had the opportunity to see the life of a church over a couple of generations. And they had the opportunity to see Jesus' personal estimation or evaluation of that church. Ephesus was a church with a storied history. You know that Priscilla and Aquila worked there and helped establish the church. The Apollos, the man mighty in the scriptures, was involved at Ephesus. And as we've been hearing from Scott in the book of Acts, Paul was there. For a period of three years, he uh, cried with them, wept with them, taught them, warned them at the church at Ephesus, uh, established the leadership there on his third missionary journey from 53 to 57 AD. Paul was there. 
And then from 65 AD, and then again 67 and 68 AD, Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus. This is where Paul wrote First and Second Timothy, those pastoral letters, while Timothy, his protege, was pastoring this church. And history tells us that the Apostle John himself pastored this church from 66 AD and on. It's a pretty remarkable lineage of spiritual leadership. Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Paul, Timothy, and John. Could you imagine having that history of pastoral leadership and care in your church? We know from Acts chapter 19 and 20 that the church at Ephesus was birthed under persecution. The gospel came, and yet it was opposed by satanic, demon-possessed men. At the very beginning, the seven sons of Sceva were there. Demetrius, the silversmith, tried to run the gospel out of town. And yet, the church at Ephesus was strong. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians for a moment. And we'll catch a glimpse of the kind of pastoral instruction they received early on in their history. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, you know that they were established in sound doctrine. The gospel very clearly explained the riches of God's grace and election and predestination, uh, God's kindness and His love for them. You know that in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul told them to be discerning. He says to them in 4.14, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up. This was a church that had already been warned about false teaching, already been warned about false doctrine, already been built up in sound doctrine, and instructed not to waver. In Ephesians 4.17, Paul says this, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. They had been instructed about how to be different than the world around them. And the world around them was a wicked place. We'll look at that in just a moment. In Ephesians chapter 5, 6 through 11, we have their instruction from Paul to be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. They were grounded in the love of God, both God's love for them and their love for God through Christ Jesus. And he goes on in verse 3 of chapter 5 to tell them that immorality and impurity and greed must not even be named among you. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. For you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Paul has instructed them about how the outflow of the love of God should work out in their life. They were to abstain from immorality, flee from it, let it not even be named among them. And then you have the letters to Timothy in First and Second Timothy, where Paul instructs them further through Timothy in sound doctrine. Listen to First Timothy chapter one, verses five through seven. The goal of our instruction is love. There is sound doctrine whose goal is love. Again, love from God, love for God, and love for others. And this love is to be from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand what they're saying. Paul has instructed them through Timothy 
to be those who are grounded in love and truth. In verse 18 of 1 Timothy, Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. In 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul instructs the church at Ephesus further through Timothy, and he says that there are men who by the hypocrisy of liars seared with their own conscience with a branding iron, there are men who will forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Paul warns them that there will be false teachers among them who try to take them away from the truth. What is it? that would characterize Ephesus. A church strong in doctrine, a church amply warned about false teachers that would come, about false teachings they needed to stay away from, about the corruption of the world around them, about internal struggles and the need for love. This is a well-equipped church. It has been well-cared for, well-led, well-taught. I don't know what you would think if you heard repeated warnings about trouble from the outside and potential trouble from the inside like the church at Ephesus had done. You might take on a sort of bunker mentality. Listen, if the world out there is so bad and there are so many threats to truth that there will be false teachers even inside the church, then maybe what we need to do is just hunker down and protect ourselves from all those things out there. There's something good in that, and there's something deadly in that mentality. Jesus' evaluation of the church at Ephesus is going to unfold for us in six elements. He gives us a salutation, a commendation, a confrontation, a command, a plea, and a promise. We're going to look at those six elements of Jesus' assessment of the church at Ephesus. A salutation, a commendation, a confrontation, a command, a plea, and a promise. How did the church at Ephesus do? With all the instruction they'd been given, with all they'd been invested with, we see first the salutation in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. This is Jesus, and Jesus has something to say to the church. Could you imagine if uh, Jesus walked into Grace Bible Church on a Sunday morning and said, I have something to say. That is effectively what this letter is. We would listen. We would listen. Ephesus was a, uh, a church at this time that had existed for some 35 years. It had been 35 years since uh, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians that we get the letter from Jesus in Revelation 2. So the church had been there for some time before Paul, and then 35 years after the book of Ephesians, this letter comes to them. They had become the center for evangelism in Asia. Ephesus was the first city that you would stop at in a sort of postal route around Asia Minor or modern Turkey. This is the city where all the Roman officials were required to pay a visit. If you were from the Roman Empire, you had to go through Ephesus. It was a gateway city uh, to all of Asia. It was the center of commerce. It was the center of games. They had a 25,000-seat stadium. 
Uh, It was the center of the worship of Artemis or Diana. Uh, Her temple there in Ephesus was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It had massive columns. Uh, 36 of those columns were encased in gold and encrusted with jewels. Uh, There was an asylum in the middle of that temple to Diana uh, that was reserved for the worst of criminals. uh, And they could go in there and not be Uh, chased down. It was an inviolable temple in the middle where uh, people could go for asylum. The the temple was devoted uh, to the worship of erotic love, and so it was a center for cult prostitution and idolatry. The immorality at Ephesus was world-renowned. It was a center, it was a hub for that kind of thing. In addition to the temple of Diana in the middle of the city, there were two temples to the imperial cult. That is, the the emperor had set himself up as God, that was even called uh, Savior of the World, and you had to pay homage to, pay money to, give sacrifices to the emperor uh, in Ephesus. And there were two temples set up dedicated to the cult of emperor worship. That is the, the situation that the church finds itself in in Ephesus. And Jesus reveals himself to John and to the churches in chapter 1. In fact, each one of the letters to the seven churches refers back to the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. Listen to how Jesus himself is described here in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus... I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now John the Apostle is writing this. John the Apostle who at the Last Supper with Jesus in John 14-17 through is leaning against Jesus, reclining against his chest, and eating a meal with him. He's familiar with Jesus. He was friends with Jesus. He was even the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was the name given to John. Very familiar. Verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John goes from his very familiar relationship to Jesus in his earthly ministry, to falling down as a dead man before the one who is shining like the sun, whose voice sounds like Niagara Falls, 
and who is untouchable, almost unseeable because of his glorious brightness, burning like a fiery furnace. John is seeing Jesus uncloaked in all of his glory. He's having something like a a vision like Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 when he saw Jesus uncloaked. And here the familiar scenes of Jesus that John had been accustomed to were replaced with the unvarnished glory of the Son of God. And Jesus, that glorious one, that terrifying one, that one who says, do not be afraid, has a message for the church at Ephesus. In each of the letters to the seven churches, he brings something forward from that vision of himself into the address of the church To Ephesus, what does he say? I am the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What do we find from verse 20? Those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Some have said angel just means messenger, so maybe this means the the postman who delivered the letters. Um, Some have said that these are the pastors over the seven churches delivering these messages. Um, I tend to think that these are angels. I think this elevates our view of what's going on behind the scenes in church. There is a heavenly reality behind what we do in the mundane things on a Sunday morning. And there is an angel responsible for each of these churches. Jesus delivers his message through the angel, through John, to the church at Ephesus. The lampstands in this vision are the churches. They are the churches. And Jesus is the one who holds the lampstands. He holds them in his hands. This is a, an image of Christ's possession of the church, of his sovereign care for the churches. It is a, an emblem of Christ's presence among the churches. He inspects them. He knows what's taking place in the churches. He tends them and cares for them. It also is a picture of Christ's ability to remove the lampstand. To take the lampstand out of its place. Jesus is present, sovereign, concerned, and among his churches. By the way, Jesus is also the light that the lampstands are to display. Right, the lampstand itself is not the light. The lampstand is the stand on which the light is to sit. That is Jesus' salutation. A reminder of who he is to the church at Ephesus. Next comes a commendation. So there's good news for the church at Ephesus. Jesus is going to commend them. We find this in verses 2 and 3 and in verse 6. He says, I know. By the way, that's a comfort and a convicting thing. That Jesus knows. And the word for know here is a, a totality of information. It is Jesus' ability to know every detail in one snapshot of what is going on. And he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. You cannot tolerate evil men. You put them to the test who call themselves apostles, but they're not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and you've endured for my namesake and you've not grown weary. Verse 6, and this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. There's Jesus' commendation. Their deeds, he knows their deeds. He knows their life and their conduct, which was in keeping with Christ-likeness. They they had rejected the immorality around them. They had rejected the Diana cult and the, the culture of immorality in Ephesus. He says, I know your toil. Uh, The word here is an all-out effort to the point of wearied exhaustion. This was a hard-working church. (coughs) Janet, can I trouble you for some water or orange juice or something? 
Thank you. He says, I know your perseverance. That is their courageous acceptance of hardship and suffering and loss. You see, if you didn't give money, if you didn't pay homage to the emperor cult, in many of the cities in Asia Minor, and it was possibly true in Ephesus, you could not receive your certificate for employment. In some places, you couldn't receive your, your ID card, your certificate to go into the grocery store and buy groceries. So at various times during the, 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 rulers of the, the rule of the emperors, the Christians would be persecuted, run out of employment, and not allowed to buy or sell. Jesus knows all of this that's going on in the church. He says, I also know your intolerance. Listen, not all intolerance is bad. He says to the church at Ephesus, you refused to tolerate evil men. You had an ongoing inability to bear with false teachers. And that's a good thing. That receives commendation from the Lord. There was trouble outside the seven sons of Sceva, Demetrius, the angry mob in Acts 19. Uh, the temple of Artemis, uh, the emperor cult, the Jews who, who did not like the, the, the Christians who had broken off from Judaism. And then the Nicolaitans. Uh, the Nicolaitans are an interesting bunch. The Nicolaitans were not out to destroy Christianity. They were out to change Christianity from the inside. The Nicolaitans preached a message of sexual immorality where you can call yourself a Christian and because you're free and because you're forgiven, you can partake in anything you want to. And Jesus says, I hate them. And you hated them too. And that's a commendation. By the way, you may recognize that, that name Nicholas. Uh, it's very possible that the, the founder of the Nicolaitan movement was none other than the Nicholas of Acts chapter 6, who was one of the proto-deacons helping serve the tables of the Gentile widows. A defector from the faith. Who, who held on to the name of Christianity, but preached an immoral version of it. And then there was trouble inside the church. Jesus makes reference here to the false apostles. That is, those who were deluded, self-deceived deceivers. And they weren't claiming to destroy Christianity either, but offering a new version of it. They were posers, they were wolves, they were false teachers. This is exactly what Paul had warned the Ephesian elders about as he departed them in Acts chapter 20. And he says, I know your endurance and your perseverance, verse 3, for my namesake. This is a paradoxical commendation. Um, you have toiled to the point of weariness, and yet you have not gotten tired of it. <laughs> You've not grown weary of laboring to the point of wearied exhaustion. For Jesus' sake. The Ephesian church had practical holiness and theological discernment. They were uncomfortable with compromise and they suffered for the name of Jesus. They were exhausted in their loyalty to Christ, but they were not exhausted of their loyalty for Christ. They were a mature, established, tested, and seasoned body of believers. It's a great commendation. Any church would love to wear that commendation from Jesus. But there's a but. It comes in verse 4, and here is a confrontation. And this is a terrifying sentence. Jesus saying to your church, But I have this against you. Stop right there. For Jesus to walk into a church and say, I have something against you. That would be weighty. That, that would be very heavy. It, it might be devastating. 
But the condemnation is even more devastating than just the fact that Jesus has something against them. He says, you have left your first love. The word for left here is a a definite and sad departure. It's the word used for abandonment or the word used for divorce. You have abandoned or left behind your first love. What is this first love? I, I believe this is love for God. Which flows out into love for other believers and love for the lost. This is not a love of first priority. As in, you love a bunch of things, but you love this the most. He's not talking about your first love above all other loves. He's talking about the honeymoon love in the early days of the church. The love you had at first. Priscilla Torado was a passenger on an Air Florida Flight 90 flight that left out of Washington Dulles Airport and crashed And she was rescued by Larry Skutnik, who was just driving by, saw the airplane crash, threw off his work boots, jumped into the icy Potomac River, and grabbed Priscilla. Her hands were so cold that when rescuers from above dropped a rope to her, she could not grip the rope. And Lenny Skutnik grabbed onto her, grabbed the rope, and rescued her. Could you imagine what Priscilla would think about Lenny for the rest of her life? She would not be ashamed of him. Uh, She would tell the world, look what this guy did for me. I'm so thankful for this rescue. If you think back to the first days of when you knew Jesus Christ. The first moments of when you recognized, I'm in trouble. I've never thought I was a sinner before. I know I'm a sinner now and I need a savior. And you found one in Jesus. And he rescued you. And not just by helping you put your hands around a rope but by dying the death that you deserved, by taking on the full wrath of a holy God to be a substitute at your execution that you deserved. You were rescued. Remember how you felt then? Remember the honeymoon days of your own conversion and your rescue and your salvation? What did you do? What did the Ephesian church do in their honeymoon days? They loved God, they loved each other, Um, theirs was a remarkable change. If you love Jesus, you will be drawn to love what Jesus loves. Jesus loves his bride, the church, to, to say that we love God, but don't love his people, we don't love our sisters and our brothers, is to be deceived about our love for God. And if we love Jesus, we'll be drawn to love our neighbor. Jesus says our neighbor is everybody, essentially, in the parable of the Samaritan. What is this first love? It is a love from God, a love for God, a love that flows out into the lives of others, the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as the lost around us. If your love for brethren, if your love for others are waxing cold, That's an indication that your love for Jesus himself has gone cold. If you love Christ supremely, you will love others. If you love Christ supremely, you won't be able to help talking about him to others. When those things are cold, that's an indication that my affections for Jesus have gone awry. What does Jesus say about his church at Ephesus? 
that their love for him had grown cold. Perhaps their love for each other had grown cold. Perhaps their love for the lost around them had grown cold. The Ephesian church was guilty of doing lots of work on their lampstand without paying much attention to the light for which the lampstand exists. How good is a lampstand with no lamp? It's a paperweight. It's a knickknack. It it serves no purpose. You you have a really nice lampstand there. You've been working on that thing. You've been polishing it. It's really shiny. Um, Where's the lamp? You see doctrinal purity, theological fidelity, suffering under persecution. Those are supposed to be a platform for something. They're not the ends in themselves. That is the lampstand from which Jesus himself is supposed to shine. They themselves are not the light. Jesus is the light. Our love for him can grow dim while we're busy doing things for him. Practical holiness, theological discernment, intolerance for compromise, hunting out heretics. These things are not designed to be the fuel for a long-lasting church. The fuel of the church is fervent personal love for God through Jesus Christ. That's the fuel of the church. And so Jesus gives a command in verse 5. Therefore, remember... Remember, here's a present tense command. Keep on remembering from where you have fallen. That have fallen is a perfect tense. That is, you fell from your first love and you are continuing in a fallen state. Remember. Go on remembering from where you came. And the next command, repent. Repent. This is a deliberate, decisive change of attitude resulting in a change of action. And return, another decisive command. Do the things you used to do when love for me was at the center. You see, the Ephesian church had allowed the fruits of love for Christ to replace love for Christ. Doctrinal fidelity, theological discernment, moral rectitude, uncompromising loyalty. These things all originated from love for Jesus. But subtly, imperceptibly, they had replaced love for Jesus. The blazing center of the Christian life was set aside by the fruits of that blazing center. And it's easy to see how that could happen. A church is birthed in the gospel and everything's new. Brand new believers, first generation believers, love for Christ is contagious. What do they do? They burned their magic books. 50,000 days wages go up in flames because they love Jesus. They were turning from their old stuff. They gladly faced rejection, persecution, isolation. Then they start to hunker down a little bit. You see, outside trouble promotes isolation. Outside trouble promotes protectionism. We've got to keep the world out. And so we've got to hunker down. And then inside trouble, false apostles, false teaching, self-deceived deceivers... That inside trouble is going to breed skepticism and suspicion. Somebody's going to teach something false and I'm going to catch it. Pretty soon everyone's looking over their shoulder for someone who's going to compromise morally. Someone who'll teach something that's off theologically. And it's not long until a church begins to pride itself in its theological purity, its moral integrity, its ability to discern error within and without. And the central thing... The thing that makes a church a church, the reason the lampstand exists, the fire and the light of Jesus, 
can cease to shine. A generation has gone by since the book of Ephesians was penned. The church at Ephesus is in danger of going out of existence in one generation. The machinery of the church is still operating. The doors open on Sundays. Sermons are preached. Songs are sung. Error is pointed out. Sin is exposed. Compromisers are run out of town. But the defining characteristic of the church, the defining characteristic of the Christian, is gone. Love has left the building. And this is no mere trifle. This is a fatal flaw. Notice Jesus' warning in verse 5. Or else... (laughs) Remember, repent, and do, or else I'm coming. Or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. This is not a reference to Jesus' final return. This is a reference to an immediate, personal correction made by Jesus with the church at Ephesus. A church cannot survive on what it is against. A church cannot define itself by what it is against. The church must be characterized, be defined by, and driven by love. And if it isn't, it doesn't get to be a church anymore. To be useful to Christ, you must be inflamed with love for Christ, or you will be removed from usefulness as a lampstand. So Jesus makes this plea in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I used to watch the Dukes of Hazzard as a kid, and Crazy Cooter would always come over the CB radio and say something like, You got your ears on? Um, He's saying, "Are, Are you on the frequency? Can you hear what I'm saying? And he can be speaking, and lots of people who don't have the frequency tuned in aren't going to hear. This is kind of like the way Jesus told the parables. And he would say things like, let him who has an ear, let him hear. I'm going to speak to everybody. And those of you with spiritual ears are going to hear what I'm saying. And the others are actually going to be blinded by what I'm saying. You're not going to understand. Jesus makes that very same assessment to this church at Ephesus. He says, let him who has an ear, let him hear. That is, if you're on the frequency, you you can hear what Jesus is saying, then listen. Then listen. And there will be some who don't understand, some who don't get it. And it's interesting the way Jesus says this. He doesn't just say, let him who has an ear at Ephesus, let him hear what the Spirit says. He says, generally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here Jesus instantaneously applies this letter to Ephesus to all churches of all times to Grace Bible Church and to me. This is designed to awaken the conscience of the faithful amidst the compromise of others. And then there's a promise in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Uh, The word for overcome here is nikao. It's where we get our brand name Nike. It means overcomer. What is an overcomer? We learn from 1 John 5, same author, uh, the couple books back. uh, He says an overcomer is one who believes An overcomer, a victorious one, a conqueror, is just a name for a Christian. One who believes, a true believer. And what is the promise for? This is a promise to believers. 
of the tree of life in the paradise of God. This is Jesus taking a direct shot at Diana. A direct shot at the temple of Artemis. In each one of these letters, Jesus appeals to something in the geography or the culture of the town that he's living in. The center of town at Ephesus was this magnificent temple devoted to Artemis or Diana. And in the middle of this temple was a tree. The emblem of the temple was a tree. And it was said to be a tree of life. It was a, it was a paradise and it was a place where uh, refugees could go and escape the law and live with impunity. And Jesus says, if you are an overcomer, if you are hearing what the Spirit says to the churches, I will give to you the real tree. The tree of life described in Genesis and in Revelation, the bookends of the Bible, the paradise of God, available to you, eternity, paradise for real, to live with God forever and ever. You hold on. You overcome. You listen. How did the church respond? To this address from Jesus. Church history tells us that the church listened. That the church at Ephesus repented collectively. And that they functioned as a witness to the love of Christ for at least another generation. Today, the city of Ephesus doesn't have a church. There is very minimal gospel witness. It is almost entirely an Islamic secular state in modern day Turkey. Very little representation of Christ there. What is our takeaway 2,000 years later? I think there are some important things we need to recognize here. We should not be content with doctrinal error. Right? Jesus, in this letter, tells us there are things that he hates. And he commends the church at Ephesus for their discernment. For their running false teachers out on a rail. Jesus commends that. There's another takeaway. We should not get comfortable with moral compromise. There were those inside the church teaching that you could be a Christian and compromise morally, and that's okay. And there were those outside the church promoting a culture of immorality. And the church at Ephesus refused to them both, and Jesus commends them for it. That's good. And we are not to be naive about false teachers within the church. It is appropriate for us to expect that people would rise among, from among our own ranks and teach things that aren't true. And to love Jesus will mean to be discerning about such men. To be rid of such men. Listen, the church will be undone if it loses truth to false teaching. And the church will be undone if holiness is replaced by immorality. But Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus is this. Doctrinal precision, moral rectitude, heresy hunting do not in themselves define the church. They do not make a healthy church. The church at Ephesus was to work hard to maintain the fire of love for Christ in your heart. Listen, if you love Jesus and you're faithful to Jesus' word, those other things must take place. They are marks of your love for Jesus. But we better not let the machinery of doing church overrun the primacy of doing love. Listen, it's much easier for a church to do programs than it is to maintain fervent love. To maintain real devotional fervent love for Jesus. To maintain real devotional fervent love for one another. To maintain real fervent love for the lost. As a church, as individuals, 
we must continually cultivate warm, affectionate, deep, personal love for Jesus Christ. Who loved us first and gave himself up for us. What would Jesus say of your life? What would Jesus say about Grace Bible Church? What would Jesus say about your own heart? I'm curious how, um, how you might respond to, to this question, and I would love some interaction. How do the wellspring disciplines fit in to cultivating a fervent affection for Jesus that will not be the cause of having a lampstand removed? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs>